Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Friday, 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 February the 3rd, 2012, and this is episode 834 of the Survival Podcast. And why am I excited? Because it's Friday, and that means today is the show for people that picked up their phone in the last couple weeks and mashed some numbers. The numbers they mashed were 866-65-THINK, again, 866-65-THINK is the number to call. When you do that, you will not hear, hello, this is Jack Spirko, how are you doing? You will hear a voicemail. And you will leave me a voicemail in two minutes or less. You will make your point, you will get to your point, and you will do it quickly like the callers here. You will call from an area where there's not a lot of background noise, and you will call without running a chainsaw or driving on a motorcycle. If you do those things, there is a damn good chance that your call will get on the air if you do it like you're going to hear these folks do today. If you take two minutes to do your call and you use 15 words in two minutes, you probably won't get on. If you call on the back of a motorcycle, you will not get on. If you call with your cell phone... When it has like a half a bar and the calls it, 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 like that, you will not get on. Just want you to know how to get on the show. Not really picking on anybody. With that, uh, before we go ahead and take your calls, let's take care of our housekeeping. Item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor the day number one, who is that? It's MERS Radio. And that's actually M-U-R-S and then a dash or a hyphen and then the word radio.com. That's Rob Belleville there. And uh, what I love about Rob is Rob has like this handful of products, these MERS radios, motion detectors, a little bit of hand gear and stuff like that. So if you go to his site and you're thinking, well, here's what I want to do, and then you pick the phone up or you send Rob an email and you say, this is what I want to do, what do I need? He's either going to say, okay, look, for what you want to do, here's the items you need from me, here's how to set it up, here's how to configure it. Here's how much it costs. You buy it. When it shows up, you have any problems, you, you get in touch with him, and he helps you do it. And he knows his product's cold because he doesn't try to be like a mini Amazon.com with every radio under the sun. Or he says, can't do that with my gear. Here's a good place to go find what you're looking for. Or he says, you can do most of that with my gear. Here's the one item you'll need from somewhere else. Here's where to get it. You can only do that when you know your product's set cold and you care about your customer. That's Rob, and that's that's MERS Radio. Now, what is MERS? MERS is an unlicensed radio frequency, meaning anybody in the public can use it. Five frequencies, five sub-frequencies, that adds up to 25 frequencies you can work with. Range about one to two miles in most situations, somewhere a little further, some places a little less. But it allows you to tie motion detectors in with your secondary communication. So you'll hear something like alert sector one when someone's crawling around on your front porch, be they man or beast. Good little piece of information to have. Now, Rob doesn't sell security cameras, but what I'm starting to do is set up mine in conjunction with uh, security cameras. I'm looking for better cameras. If anybody, In fact, if anybody knows where I can get a good solar-charged uh, motion detector camera, or even, I don't even need it to be a motion detector, folks. I, 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 as long as I can key it up and bring it on when I want it on, because the motion detectors go off and I can bring up those cameras. I, that's what I, my thought is, is to tie in motion detectors with my MERS system and then have cameras in the area so I can inspect the area without going outside, specifically not vision cameras. Um, that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Now, again, you can't get those cameras from Rob, but just give you an idea of being creative with Rob's system. Uh, next up today, Safe Castle Royal. I always say what they are. They are the original Survival Podcast sponsor. When we only had a couple thousand listeners, and uh, we really weren't that big a deal yet, 
Uh, Vic Rontala said, I want to support the show. I love what you're doing. I know where you're going. I want to be part of it. And he did. And I set up a formal sponsorship uh, program, and he was the first person that we put into it. And uh, he stayed with us ever since. By next year, it'll be four years. Four years. Uh, actually, I would say, yeah, this year was a renewal of three. So three years we've been taking sponsors. Three years Vic's been here. That's awesome. That's just awesome. Uh, that just doesn't happen in the podcasting world. They don't. People in podcasts do not keep sponsors for over three years. Not only does he sponsor the show, but he has a program called Discount Buyers Club, which gives you a lifetime membership and gives you discounts on everything that he sells. That costs fifty bucks, forty nine dollars to be specific, and uh, people pay for it every day. And you get it for free if you're a member of our support brigade. So how cool is that as well? So that's another big thing. What do you find there? Everything you can think of for your prepping needs. Long-term storage, food, tactical stuff, you name it. And then if you link on over from Safe Castle's main site to their sister site, they build some of the best hardened shelters under the sun or sometimes under the earth. Uh, so check them out today. And again, their website is actually at prepared.pro. Prepared.pro. Best way to find them and all our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banners in the right hand margin, and that way you know you're dealing with a true sponsor, not a cheap imitator. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And uh, I would appreciate if you consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get a bunch of free ebooks, you get a bunch of discounts, you support the show at 20 cents an episode. That comes out at 50 bucks a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service. Email me at jack at the survival podcast prior to joining. Put something like uh, service discount or military discount in the subject line so it comes to my attention quicker. And I will send you a special discount code just for thanking you for your service. And uh, with that, I think we're ready to get into the main topic of today's show. Before I do, though, I want to remind everybody, February 14th is Valentine's Day. Men, do not forget. Flowers is always a good idea. Uh, but a big thing, too, is there is a movement going around called Starbucks uh, Appreciation Day for the Second Amendment. Uh, it's like 2A for $2 Appreciation Day. The deal is you'd go down to a Starbucks with a $2 bill. You buy a coffee or a scone or whatever. You buy one for a friend if you don't drink coffee. And we thank Starbucks for standing tall uh, on the Second Amendment and not caving to request that they ban firearms in Starbucks stores. I had a comment from a person on the blog yesterday who works for Starbucks and said, I don't believe we support the Second Amendment, really, because I can't carry to work. So Starbucks does not let its employees carry, but they'll let you. You said they're only following the law. Let me tell you the law. Anybody with a concealed carry permit probably knows you go to a class uh, to get a license in your state, and in that class they teach you certain things. One of the things they teach you is that, and I don't know of any states that don't have this law, that any private business owner or any private residence owner can say, you can't bring a gun on my property, and they post a sign citing a specific law at the state level that, that includes even licensed carry holders. If that sign is posted, you can't go in. If Starbucks wanted to ban people from carrying in their store, uh, it's true that they're following the law by allowing it, but they would also by fo following the law by posting proper signage and saying you can't do it. They've come under tremendous pressure. I put out a link yesterday of one example from the Huffington Post. There's been petitions. There's been a lot of pressure from the yuppie component, which is probably half of their freaking uh, customers, to do this, and they haven't done it. So simply by going there, spending a $2 bill, and letting somebody know why you're there, and I'll put a link for more information in today's show notes, you can say, hey, we saw what you did and we appreciate it. This is not saying that they, they, they you know, we're not saying Starbucks is equated with the NRA, folks. That's not what this is. This is simply, if they did ban it, you know what we would do. So when they didn't ban it, when they stood up against the pressure, let's recognize it. How much trouble is it? Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack, it's Russell from Covington. Um, I think what you got, your, your boy Dave that's building dams that he's not sure, 
most probably Nutria. They, uh, they kind of build up some lodges and stuff like that. And, uh, I mean, but that's South Louisiana. Uh, but I'm sure these things have migrated over there, no problem, with the interconnection of the waterways and all of that. Uh, you know, Sabine, you know, if he's on the east, of course he's on the Sabine River. And, uh, yeah, Nutria. All right, later. Uh, the Dave he's talking about is Dave uh, from uh, allthingsplants.com that we had on uh, uh, last week. And uh, Dave said that he had something building dam-like structures on the, the, the creek and bayou area around his property in East Texas. Uh, but he was pretty sure it wasn't beavers. And I, I would tell you that's probably he's probably, the, the caller here is probably exactly right. It is probably nutria. For those of you from the northern states, you may not know what a nutria is. It's a giant aquatic rat. It's really not a rat, but it is a rat. Um, it, it looks just like a great big rat, and it swims in the water. And it was originally introduced into the southern United States by fur ranchers. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with a muskrat, uh, the fur is very much like that of a muskrat, but they get about at least twice, maybe a little bit bigger than twice the size of your average muskrat. So you get a lot of fur. They're very, very hardy, and uh, they breed like what they are, rats. Uh, they eat plants, and uh, they are capable of doing immense amounts of destruction, uh, especially in places where they don't have a lot of natural predators. Well, they're not from the southern United States, so there's not a lot in the southern United States that eats them. There's no anacondas uh, running around. I guess alligators probably take some of them, but uh, maybe not sufficiently to control their population the way they do where they belong. Where do they belong? They belong in places like Argentina and Bolivia and Paraguay and Uruguay and southern Brazil. Uh, they do not belong uh, in the United States. And uh, therefore, they're pretty much shoot on sight. Now, I'll tell you one good thing about Nutria from a prepper standpoint. If you have them in your area, they taste damn good. I've had Nutria. Um, the way I had it done was very similar to the way that we used to do groundhogs uh, when we shot groundhogs in Pennsylvania. A uh, gentleman that I know from southern Louisiana tossed, uh, quartered it, tossed in a pressure cooker, and pressure cooked it for about two to three minutes only, just enough to kind of tenderize it, and then uh, seasoned it up and uh, basically barbecued it on a grill. And it was it was awesome. I I could eat it every day of my life, honestly. So uh, they may not be good for the environment, but they're good for the table. I thought it was just kind of a funny, odd thing and a follow-up by a listener who wanted to help out. And uh, so let, use it as a lead-off call. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. Chip here from Northern Nevada. Love the show. Uh, quick question for you on real estate, short sales, et cetera. Um, I have a couple properties in Las Vegas that I've, I've gone through short sales with. And uh, so, you know, the credit's not looking so good these days for my family. Um, up in northern Nevada now, and uh, we're looking to move to Alaska, get more of a homestead thing. We've got a quarter acre here looking to get more like, you know, five, ten-ish acres up in Alaska. And uh wanted to know your thoughts on, you know, what's what's best right now. I mean, it doesn't seem like the real estate market's going to going to bounce back anymore and so you know at this point do you think it's best just to just to walk from underwater property i mean we didn't buy any time in the bubble or anything but in nevada here properties now are less than they were going for you know pre-2000 so uh you know we're significantly underwater and uh just hate to put my life plans on hold uh just because of the market um you know not one to to want to shirk my bills, but you know it is what it is, and I feel like I, 
getting the freedom taken away from me to just to just move on and uh wouldn't know your thoughts on that uh thanks for all you do take care bye I'll tell you, it's interesting how one listener answers another listener's uh, question. In this case, I got an article a couple days before the call that I was actually going to save this article for Monday's show, uh, my feedback show by email. And it's called um, What Happens When You Walk Away From Your Home, and it's on Yahoo Finance. Let me read the last part of it, and uh, then I'll give you my thoughts on top of this. Um Here we go. Strategic default isn't a decision to be taken lightly. Of course, if everyone did it, the housing market and the banks would be in much worse shape than they already are. The following are some issues to keep in mind. Number one, look at it as a last resort, not a first option. Your financial troubles could be alleviated with simple refinancing, especially since 30-year mortgage rates are near record lows, below 4%. Bank is hesitant to rework your loan. Look into a number of government programs designed to keep you in your home, which can be researched at makinghomeaffordable.gov. Problem is, this guy wants out. He doesn't just want to stay in. Two, location, location, location. This one's important. Each state has its own rules and regulations regarding foreclosures, which affect both the length of the process and what you could be liable for in the end. In so-called non-recourse states like Arizona, California, and Texas, a lender cannot come after you for any deficiency. For instance, if your mortgage was $300,000, they're only able to sell for $200,000. In other states, they can pursue the difference in theory, which is why some owners opt to file for bankruptcy to free themselves from those potential obligations as well. Three, use the interim to save like a demon. If you're in a state like New York or Florida, which requires judicial review for every foreclosure, it might be a couple of years before you actually have to pack up. In the meantime, be extremely disciplined about stockpiling cash, That will help you with a down payment for a rental. If you pay for a car in cash, to pay for a car in cash if you need to, to clear up other debts you might have, save money as if you were still paying the mortgage, says Archer. If you don't, they'll run, you'll run, you'll run out of both time and money, and then you'll be in a real tough spot. Four, this is the important one, guys. I want you to really listen to this one. Historically, if you've had debt that's forgiven, The canceled amount is considered taxable by the IRS. In the wake of the housing bust, though, the Mortgage Forgiveness Debt Relief Act was drafted to spare you those taxes. That legislation expires at the end of 2012, though, so if it's not extended, you could potentially face a tax bill for the difference. Let me explain what that means in layman's terms. Let's say we have that same scenario. You bought the house for $300. You owe $300. You can't pay the mortgage. The bank won't work with you. You say, screw it. You throw the keys at them, and you walk away. And then the bank sells the, the house for $300, for $200,000, and you owe them $100. And they know they really it's too much trouble to pursue you, so they write the debt off as a forgiven debt. So they're not going to pursue you for it. It doesn't mean it doesn't go on your credit report. It means they don't come after you for the money. The IRS says, that's income. You owe us 30% tax bracket, $30,000. That's income. You were paid income. That was your debt, and it was a rate. They still have all the consequences, but you never have to pay it, so you owe us money. And at the end of this year, unless they extend that law that they try to protect people that are in the situation, it goes away. Five, talk to a professional. A bankruptcy or real estate attorney can help you through a very tricky process. The National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, for instance, has a searchable database. 
Um, strategic default is not an easy decision. There is a cost either way, said Gary Detweiler, Director of Consumer Education for Credit.com. Would you rather be $200,000 underwater or would you rather have seven years of damage to your credit report? Depends on whether you're finally at a point where enough is enough. So basically they're telling you how to do it and they're telling you what it's going to cost you if you do it. I think that's the information every individual needs for themselves. I have made no... Uh, mistake about it, or made, made no, uh, made it far, made it known in the past. I guess the best way to say that I find the process of specifically deciding I'm not going to pay my mortgage. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to stockpile cash and wait till they throw me out and leave with as much money as I can to be very unethical. I, I find it extremely unethical. What I do not find unethical is saying to the bank, "Look." Uh, you know the house isn't worth what they say it's worth. I know the house. Let's work something out. Let's come to an agreement where I can get rid of the house or whether I, or where I can keep the house and be reasonable in your expectations and reasonable in your assertions and try to work out a deal. When the bank then says go screw, then you do what you got to do. Um, so you got to make that decision for yourself. I can't make it for you. And I do understand the, the feeling of being trapped and not being able to get out from under the house. The key is if you do it that way, Wherever you go, you're going to be a renter because nobody's going to give you a mortgage. And you're probably not going to save up enough money to buy a house. Unless you do, and then in which case you can. Then the other thing you have to look at is protecting yourself from, again, uh, the forgiveness of the loan being seen as income by the IRS. And from uh, possibly, I don't know your state because it wasn't mentioned in the article, uh, the lender coming after you for the balance and basically saying that, that a foreclosure is now technically a short sale. That's how short sale works, folks. You, you know, you owe 150, you can sell the house for 140, the bank lets you sell it for 140, but then you owe them 10. And then you have to pay that out over time. That's how, that's not how every one of them works, but how it's a lot of them work. And, uh, that's something that they basically force you into in some of these states. Um, it's not easy for them to do in a lot of states. In some states, it's easier to do. But definitely, this is something that you don't take Jack Spierko's advice on directly. You get a good, uh, a good attorney and a good real estate agent, and you look at this and say, what are all my options? And then you have to do the best thing for yourself and your family. Uh, but I would say that you took the mortgage. It's not your fault the market collapsed, but you signed off on it. You gave your word that you would make good on the debt, and now you're in a situation where you don't want to make good on the debt. So it's at least incumbent upon you to try to work with the bank. I want to say a little bit more about this here. I keep hearing about how the banks got bailed out, but the people didn't. I agree and I disagree. Here's the They got bailed out with our money. That's my problem. But the reality is when people say, well, you know, Bank of America got all this money and then they still foreclosed on people, understand what happened. All the people paying on their mortgages didn't pay the bank. And all that bailout money did was fill the hole in the bank so the bank could make good on its obligations to other people. And so the bank could still, like, function and not go under. So when you fill a hole, if you take the money out of the hole and give it to somebody else, there's a hole again. So in some instances, the banks totally screwed over the mortgage holders who were supposed to be helped by this. And in some instances, the banks held on to capital because it's what kept them from going under. So it's really kind of a little of both. I think that we just need to, you know, when we're villainizing the banksters, as uh, Salente calls them, there's a lot of truth there. But there's also a lot of truth in that we kind of need banks to function right now. More on that one in a bit from another call. Hello, Jack. PDX Prepper from the forum here. I have a question today regarding bug-out location. We currently live in Portland, Oregon, and due to circumstances, we need to stay here for five years. Um, 
but we're planning on relocating out of state after that. Uh, my question, you know, might be motivated by paranoia or fear or whatever, you know, maybe I've been listening to too much Alex Jones, but um, would you bother buying a bug out location in an area where you were only going to stay for another four or five years and then just have that, you know, as an investment after you move or would you uh, just wait until after you make your big move before you start worrying about a bug out location? Um, we can't really go the route that you and your wife did as far as buying a, a bug out location and driving back and forth and working on it. We're planning on relocating couple thousand miles away from where we are right now so um i've just been looking at some land up in central washington and uh it's pretty decent price and wondering if maybe we should have a spot to go to just in case while we're here for the next four or five years so um i don't know look forward to hearing your answer thanks keep up the good work It's another one of those questions where I'm really leery to tell you what you should do. I, I try not to tell people what they should do. I don't tell people what to think. I try to tell you how to think, uh, how to think critically, and then make your own decision. So what I can tell you is my feelings and what I would do. First, I'd say on the Alex Jones comment, if you think you've been listening to Alex too much, you've been listening to Alex too much. It's kind of like if you think you might have a drinking problem, you, you probably have a drinking problem. It's, it's that kind of thing. Uh, not to put Alex down or another, it's just, it's just reality. There's, there's only so much of, of that type of, let's call it entertainment, that a person can take without having some level of detrimental effect on their day-to-day -day thinking. Um, it's, it's like being constantly stressed. It's not good for you. Um, Personally, no. If I knew damn well that I was going to move several thousand miles away uh, within the next four to five years, and I knew that for a fact, and it was a drop dead, I'm going to do this thing, um, then I'll tell you what, I would absolutely not buy a bug out location in, in reasonable proximity to where I live unless I found like, you know, some kind of ridiculous deal. If I just found like, like it was a piece of land that God, I would pay that for that piece of land any day. I'd buy that piece of land side unseen for that price. And then you can just look at it as an investment. It's there. But I wouldn't make it part of my plan. Uh, I would either hold off or um, if you know where you're going to move, you might look at buying property there. Because uh, that's more of a long-term plan. So I know you can't do what I did up here, but the reality is we didn't do that much except stock the place and, and do some a few other things. Um, but, you know, if you just want a piece of land somewhere, you don't really have to do a lot. Um, and having it there when you move to the area gives you some options. If you can do it with a house on it right now, so much the better, as long as you know damn well that's where you're going to be going. This is something you have to do from a very logical, methodical, planning place in your life. You can't do it on fear. You can't do it on paranoia. Now, you can take some reasonable concerns into account. What happens if um, the shit hits the fan, even in just in your own life, and whatever you're depending on for income, where you are now, goes away? Would you say, well, then screw the long-term waiting to move. Let's pull up stakes and go. If you would, then having a place to go to, even if it's just 
you know, a piece of land with a mobile home on it, even a smaller one that basically you real rebuild your life, get a job, and then build a structure, put a larger home or something on it later, it gives you an option to bug out from a personal standpoint. Uh, so it, you know, it doesn't have to be the place that you're going to live for the rest of your life for it to fill that role. What kind of living arrangements do you see yourself having when you move? You got to look at that too. If you're planning, I'm going to move out there and I'm going to essentially live Uh, in a rural kind of retreat environment where my home is a bug-out location, for lack of a better term, kind of like I do now. My, my bug-out location became my home. Uh, and then maybe I'll look for another little piece of you know uh, fallback location somewhere in that proximity. Then it makes a lot of sense to buy something out there now if you can do it without putting yourself under too much financial stress. If your intention is we're going to go out there and buy a home in the suburbs out there and just take a different job working in the mainstream and then own a little piece of bug-out property, that almost even makes more sense to go ahead and find your couple acres or whatever, a mountain land out there now uh, and start taking trips out there. I don't mean every month. I mean once a year for a couple days and just start forming relationships, build, looking for a job. What is it? To, see, this is the other thing. I, one bad thing about not doing a live show, I don't know what you mean by we're going to go. Are you going to go because a contract's being run out and you're going home? You know, if you're going home to where your parents live, that's one thing. Do you just mean that, like, you know your job will move you there? Uh, or do you have just a strategic plan that you guys always wanted to pr you prefer to live in location X versus location Y, and this is just at the point where you know you're going to have enough stability to be able to make it happen. All of those have to factor into this decision. But on the initial question, would I buy a bug-out property in an area where I absolutely knew I was going to be hell and gone from in four years? Probably not. Unless you would be willing to continue to use it as a long-range bug-out location. In other words, um, if you're on the East Coast and the whole thing goes to shit, but it's a regional thing, having a bug, bug allocation toward the West Coast side of things isn't necessarily bad, but it's a big gamble. It's a big gamble that way, and you're likely to end up with a piece of land you pay taxes on you're not happy with. Uh, and it's a gamble the other way, buying a piece of land where you're going, unless you damn well know you're going there. And like, if you have family there, that's a pretty... That's a pretty big magnet that's drawing you back. Like if both of y'all's parents live there, uh, that would that would be a pretty solid bet, you know. And then you'd have someone locally to look after things. But those are the things you have to think about. In the end, though, you gotta make your own decision. That's just that's just how I would analyze the situation. And I tell you what, I would actually do. I'd actually have to be presented with the situation, and I'm I, I'm not yet. So there you go. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, I appreciate the show. Just wanted to ask you a quick question. I have the opportunity coming up within the next five years or so to uh, possibly buy a small business. It's a jewelry store, and uh, I know it's a great opportunity, but I'm not sure about you know market realities and all that other stuff. I'm not sure if it'll be worth it. Uh, first of all, I know I'm going to have to go into some amount of debt to purchase it. Um, it's not a huge operation, but it will be a considerable sum of money. And I was just wondering what you would say about, you know, the future and how small businesses are going to perform in the next uh, 20 to 30 years and uh, exactly what would be the wisdom in possibly going after such a thing. I appreciate it. Bye. Another one of those questions, right? I mean, you guys are just throwing me the hardballs this week on stuff. You know, what should I do questions are very difficult to answer when there are these big life decisions you have to make for yourself. But let me again, let me go with how I'd make this decision. Um, from a purely entrepreneurial business standpoint, 
if I'm going to buy a business or invest in a business or even buy a portion of a business, the first thing I'm going to want to do is look at the valuation of the business. What's the business worth? What's its annual sales? What's its annual profit? And what's its inventory? And what's its inventory turnover rate? Uh, that and some other things and having it done by a professional who can give me a true, uh, uh, I think it's called Blackmore valuation of the business. If we were to cut this business up into stock and issue stock against it, what would it be worth today? And how, you know, if we were to do a dollar a share, how many shares would there be? And I'm not going to pay a dime over that. And I'm going to, in this climate and environment, I'm going to try to pay significantly under that. Um, And that's just a reality. And if I, can, if I can do it for the price, then maybe we're talking, right? All right, now here's the next thing I'm going to ask. Do I know the business? It's a jewelry business. Do you know jewelry? Do you know the business? Would you be working in the business if one of the people that you thought as coming over as an employee died or was shot or abducted by aliens, could you step in and fill their role? Are any employees coming with the business? You get the experience and the problems when employees come with a business. Is it a mom-and-pop, two-man operation? Is a lot different than if it's a store that employs maybe, let's say, half a dozen people. Will those people want to work for you in that scenario? These are all things that have to be considered. Personally, I don't like storefront brick-and-mortar businesses, and I don't like holding inventory because inventory is holding money uh, that you, you don't get any income on. So when I look at a jewelry store, even a relatively small jewelry store, it, it's conceivable to have a half a million to a million dollars worth of merchandise at any one time sitting in there in inventory. Uh, it's quite small for the jewelry industry. So now I'm sitting on all this inventory, and if it doesn't move, and what state is in it? If I'm sitting in California, those bastards will tax me on the inventory that I'm holding at the end of the year. If I'm in other states, they won't do that. So that's another thing. So I would not own a jewelry business in the state of California. I don't know if I want to own any business in the state of California, but I sure as hell wouldn't own a business that's highly inventory intensive in a state that has an end-of-year inventory holding tax. Because the states that do that should have the, the lawmakers that did it drug out in the streets and tarred and feathers like they did during the revolution. Seriously. That is the most disgusting abuse of taxation I've ever heard of in my life. So that's a big issue there. The future of the business. What's your market? High end? Low end? Middle? I mean, that's, you know, the mid price jewelry that the average guy buys the average housewife. Uh, when times get tough, that business dries up. Low-end junk shit's always easy to sell. Uh, high, high-end stuff, uh, with high-end clientele, the, 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 the wealthy, that's a much more stable business in that world. So, that is something I would have to consider. I would not buy any brick and mortar business though without a healthy e-commerce component to it today. That, that broadens your reach so much. So either I would be developing the infrastructure to plug an e-commerce position into this business over the next few years myself as part of my plan, uh, or I would make sure that the ownership has done so. And if there was not potential for a really good e-commerce side, in other words, internet sales side, I really don't want to deal with it. I'm serious. It's just too limited. So those are my personal concerns. On the upside, the one thing I can say for this in a recession or a collapse scenario, a lot of the inventory you're holding is gold and silver. So as cash devalues in a crash, at least you're holding precious metals in a, in a kind of a unique form. So that could be good. But here's what I'm really going to tell you. If you don't know the business, then you probably don't need to be buying the business. If you don't know the jewelry industry and you're serious about this, 
Spend these next three to four years that you have learning the industry and make sure it's something you really want to be a part of. Um, if you are, now let's take this another way, and I don't think you are, you wouldn't ask a question. If you are the kind of person that routinely buys businesses, puts other people in place, and excels at the structure of business management where the guy could be selling waffles or diamond rings and it doesn't matter, you manage from that standpoint, then you can buy any business you want based on financials. People that do that, though, don't ask me you know, whether to buy the business or not. But solid review of the financials, solid business valuation. Um, without those two things, you're dead in the water. Do you know the business? Those are the big ones. And, um, again, I, I'm leery of anything where you're holding lots of inventory. And does the state that you're in charge an end-of-year inventory tax? Do you get taxed on the inventory? And if they do, what's the rate? What's it going to cost you every year? For just what's sitting on your shelf that you took a loss on all year long by not selling. That's that's a very, very critical thing. With that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Mary inside your nation's capital of the District of Columbia. I have a comment in regards to uh, food production in urban areas. I have a small container garden on the carport and a 10 by 5 in-ground garden. I've managed to grow about 5% of my food despite not having full sun or southern exposure. I've just come from outside where I've uh, gathered a salad for dinner tonight. I've got beets and turnips and onions still going strong out there. Besides the usual herbs of cilantro and mint uh, in pots, I grow a winter salad mix in the large containers. So it can be done. You can grow food even if you only have a few containers and a postage stamp-sized yard. Jack, I enjoy your show, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Goodbye. Well, I can sum up my thoughts in one word. Awesome. I mean, how awesome is that to be able to grow 5% of your food requirements uh, in one 5x10 garden in a couple containers in the middle of D.C., of all places? Uh, not the worst, but not the best-growing environment. And without the proper solar orientation to do it, most people think it can be done. I would also tell you that a lot of folks that have to deal with really small spaces have some advantages that I don't think they realize. When you have a very small space to grow in, you first of all have to make most efficient use as possible out of that space. So you're going to do a really efficient job. But the other thing is when it comes to things like pest management, fertilization, and taking care of your soil and all that, it's really easy because everything's right there. And the first time that that big green hornworm starts chomping on your tomato, you see him and remove him and, and, and cause him misery as he is destroyed into the, the death that he deserves. So I think with these small spaces comes immense opportunity. I'll also tell you, those of you dealing with small spaces, really, I know the shipping's high. It's like 10 bucks or 11 bucks or something like that. It might be 12 uh, because it has to come from Australia. But Jeff Lawton has an urban permaculture DVD that you have to get your hands on. Um, I don't get anything out of telling you that. They're not a sponsor or anything. But I was blown away in what's been done in tiny spaces by the urban permaculture DVD. But in this example, it's not even really, you know, permaculture. And I don't want to put anything down this caller's doing. Obviously, she's doing a great job. But it's not really a – it doesn't sound like a permaculture thing because it doesn't sound like it's completely integrated. It's a bed and some containers. And I'm sure you're growing in natural techniques and also there's a permaculture component there, but we haven't permascaped the land. And we're still getting 5% of what we need uh, to eat. And to those that say, well, what's 5%? That's 5% I don't have to rely on the store for. It's 5% that's much higher quality nutrition. 
If I take the money saved and I, even if I just put it right back into food, I can then afford another, let's say, 10% of my food that's a higher quality nutrition than what I've been buying in the past. Then I can start to build relationships with local growers. And it's a catalyst. And I'll bet you, if this caller looks, there's probably some other places she could eke out some space. And what's weird to me, when I look at all the things that have been done in the urban uh, scapes, the urban permaculture scapes, is how much you really can do. It's unbelievable when you're forced into that limited design. And I've actually talked to a lot of permaculture designers that actually say they kind of like designing small spaces a half acre and under because you have to think harder and you always do a better job. So there you go. Great call. Thanks for sharing that with us. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Jake, paid-up subscriber in Milwaukee. Uh, let me first just say uh, I'm against the war in the Middle East for a variety of reasons. Uh, the whole WMDs, the whole oil thing, uh, a fact I think we should have our troops on our own border. Uh, there was some fishy stuff that happened on 9-11. We're fighting against people with no planes, no tanks, no boats, no uniforms, no officers, etc. Uh, Gerald Salente says, you know, when an economy collapses, they take you to war. And our government steals our money. They make ridiculous rules about things. They have no authority to do so. Uh, they use my money to kill people that I don't ha necessarily have any problem with in my name. Uh, with a world war, they kidnap your kids and uh, send them to a meat grinder they created. What are your thoughts specifically about this war and being a conscientious objector if the draft comes and drawing that line saying, you're not getting my kids? Uh, thanks for the great podcast. Oh, there's a lot going on there. And let me say a couple things. One, I want to kind of tell you my view of the weapons of mass destruction issue with Iraq. And I do think we were misled. But I also think that it was easy to mislead us because of the actions of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein would say, okay, you can go in there today. And then the inspectors would go in. And then you'd say, you go over there and you can go in there today. And they go, we want to go back where we were yesterday. You can't go back there. Okay, fine. We'll go here. We want to go there. You can't go there today. Like two weeks later, now you can go there, but you can't go back where you just were. Oh, those are the actions of somebody moving something around and hiding it. Now, what was he moving around and hiding? Apparently nothing. The, the reality was, Hussein was paranoid, not just of the U.S., but of his neighboring nations like Iran. Uh, remember, Iran and Iraq fought an eight-year war that, you know, really brought them both to a bloody standstill. And uh, he was afraid that if he looked completely disarmed, which he pretty much was, that he would be vulnerable attacked by one of those nations. Of course, the the uh, you know, the, the the NATO nations would go, "Sorry about your luck, dude," and we probably would have. So. He tried to walk both sides of that. He tried to walk, um, were disarmed, and were armed at the same time, and that didn't work out. And that made it very easy for us to be misled. I do believe that even the people that misled us were shocked at how, how there was nothing. I, I, I was like, not only will they find something, if they don't find something, they'll truck something in and say they found something, and, and they didn't even do that. So I think a lot of people were surprised by that. I think Iraq and Afghanistan are two very different locations. I think that we've done our job in Iraq, Iran, uh, Iraq. I'm sorry, and, and we probably should be out all the way. I'm talking contractors and everything. And I don't know if we should have fought that war or not. I don't know. I mean, I'll be a man and tell you I don't know. 
I know that when George Bush, as much as I dislike the guy on some things, came out and said the world is better off with Saddam Hussein, I, I, I know why he said that. It's very difficult to disagree with. Um, how many civilians we killed, though, is, is incalculable. And we all have to live with the morality of that. And was it worth it? And I don't know. I don't, and I don't think we'll know for 20 years if it was worth it or not. I don't think we'll know unless Iraq becomes what Iraq is capable of becoming now. And if it doesn't, uh, then it wasn't. And if it does, then maybe it was. And I don't know. Afghanistan, um, you can say whatever you want about 9-11. I don't, that's another one I don't know. I know that when I see all of this uh, conspiracy stuff around 9-11 where everybody knows everything that happened and everything we saw didn't happen and it was all this way and there was controlled demolitions and there was a missile in the Pentagon and all, I, I don't buy that. But I have huge questions around 9-11. I feel very misled by my government about 9-11. I don't believe the official story because the man that wrote the 9-11 report, the guy that signed off on it, came out after he signed off on it and said, you shouldn't believe the official story because we were forced to put in it what we put in it. So since the guy that wrote it says not to believe it, I don't either. So that ties us right into, you know, do we need to go to Afghanistan? Is the world a better place without Osama bin Laden? Yeah, was it worth the cost and lives and money and equipment and the lives of the people that get forgotten, the civilians in the nation that we blew the shit out of? I, I don't feel that it was. And some, some of you may be very angry with me for that. I want to say the other important thing, though. Yeah, I can support the troops without supporting the war. I really can. I, and the lies that have been told that say you can't do that are bullshit. A soldier doesn't get to decide where he goes. A soldier simply gets to decide in the situation what, what's the morally correct thing to do in the situation that he's been placed into. And most of our guys do a beautiful job of that. They really do. And I respect the hell out of them, and I support the hell out of them. And I'd like them to come home. And I'd like, like you, I'd like to see them defending our own borders. Uh, I'd like to see us much more in a Ron Paul mode. I'd like to see if we're going to go to another country and bomb them and shoot them, then let us declare war the way the Constitution says, or let us not do it. I'd like a more informed public that can't be just revved up in a fervor for war. Uh, on your last question, if there ever comes a draft again, do you stand up and say, not my child is a conscientious objector? No, you don't. No, you don't. Now, hold on. I know somebody's angry. Some people are shocked. Some people are cheering. You're, you're, you're gonna, most of you, though, have no idea what I'm going to say next. No, you don't, because it's not your decision. Uh, you draft somebody at the age of 18 where they're considered legally an adult. It's not up to you whether they serve or they don't serve. You can advise them. You can tell them what to do. But if they conscientiously object... All the good and the bad that come with that, the potential for arrest, having to flee, everything that happens to them happens to them, not to you. So by the time your kid's grown up and become an adult, who the hell are you to make a life decision that will have such long implications in their life on their behalf? You sitting down and telling them everything you think and feel about what you think they should do, I think is the morally correct thing to do, regardless of what that is, because they're your child and you got them there, and it's your time to stand up and advise them. But it's not your time to make the decision for them. Um, that decision could impact them in ways we can't even fathom. Now, on the, on the positive side of this, I don't see a draft returning anytime soon. Uh, I don't think most of the people running our military want a draft anytime soon. And I don't think the nation will tolerate it the way that we have in the past. Um, what do I think about the current wars? I think that it's time for them to be over. That's what I think about the current wars. I think it's time for these nations to run themselves. 
I think it's time for us to pull ourselves out of over 100 different nations that we have a military presence in that we don't need to be there. I think it's time to make our Army and our Navy and our Air Force and our Marines a great big giant badass version of Switzerland's. Meaning, we're not going to mess with you, but boy, don't you mess with us. I think it's time to follow um, somebody who I don't completely agree with, but at times I did, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, when he said, speak softly and carry a big-ass stick. Uh, and, you, you know, you carry that big stick, but you only use it when somebody attacks you, not because they may attack you someday. And I know a lot of people think that that type of uh, foreign policy uh, is, is, uh, is weak. Or that what will the rest of the world do without us? Well, maybe they'll conduct business the way that they want to. And maybe we'll conduct business the way that we want to. And maybe all this shit about, but they'll do this and they'll do that. Folks, there is no nation on this planet that wants a war with the United States. No one wants to wake that sleeping giant again. And I'll tell you that I believe a lot of negative things about some of the people in the, that are in my, you know, my fellow Americans that are just apathetic and lazy. But I'll tell you, when you piss us off, we, we, we unite pretty well and we're a pretty amazing group of people still. And that if it was a legitimate attack, a legitimate threat, and the American people believed it, God help the, the entity causing the wrath, and the rest of the world knows that. This, this concept that the world can't run itself without us, how the hell did it run itself before us then? How the hell did it run itself for the first hundred years when we didn't have enough influence to matter? Somehow the rest of the world functioned. And to say, well, well look at how many people died. Look how many people died while we did nothing. Look at Darfur. You know? Look at how many people died after World War II under the Iron Curtain when we just said, oh, yeah, you guys can have that. So don't, don't make like we're some kind of angels or anything. We do a lot of good in the world, and unfortunately we do and have done a lot of bad in the world. And we would do well to follow the advice of Ron Paul, who in 2002 laid out what the next 10 years would be like and was absolutely spot on. And everything he said that would happen overseas did. The good and the bad. So maybe when that guy tells you, you know, the best course would be to kind of pull back from the stuff, maybe you need to look at it not as some peacenik nonsense or some anti-war nonsense. And there's, I want to finish this up with something, and i, I got to stop because there's another war question coming up. But uh, if, you're anti, if you're not anti-war, I have to ask you what's wrong with you. And let me be clear what I mean by that. Anti-war means you don't want war. If you want war, you got a problem. You really do. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be a justifiable, supportable war. And in that instance, you are, you are supporting the war. But if you're pro-war, to say you're pro-war means you're for, there should be a war somewhere. Come on, let's, let's, if there's not one, let's start one. We gotta have one. There's gotta be somebody that needs their ass kicked. Let's go do that. And there's, a, there's like a bravado that's been marketed into the mentality of the American people. Of that type. And there's also been the, the converse. There's been a marketing of, you know, it's never right to fight a war. Which is equally bullshit. Whenever you find yourself to the extreme on any issue, ask yourself why. And ask yourself if you really have all the information. And understand this. If you don't agree with what I said today, don't worry. I don't set foreign policy and I don't try to. Let's take another call. Yes, uh, Jack. Uh, I know you recommend gold and silver. You do great service with this. But I've always uh, confused by your understanding of gold and silver. So I watched the uh, documentary, Secret of Oz. I must say, your claim of being a libertarian is in question by the recommending this film. Yes, they do criticize and explain the Federal Reserve System for completely the wrong reasons, okay? These people have an agenda. And you should have recognized within the first five minutes when Ellen Brown got on there. 
she had an exchange with Gary North, exposed her, what she really is, and she had an interview with Peter Schiff that explains to her she has no clue about economics or gold. They criticized and villainized gold and silver in this, too. That, that was a clue right there, okay? Um, these people are what they call greenbackers. They want to go one step further than the Federal Reserve and have Congress directly print money. I didn't get through the whole documentary. I got halfway through. I couldn't take it no more, okay? Um, you know, being a libertarian doesn't mean you have to understand everything about history or economics, but that you can, rec- you can recognize small rat when somebody tells you the answers to give up your freedom. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, let me just say that this is a perfect example of why libertarians can't get shit done anywhere at all in the United States. This is a perfect example of why the movement is smaller today than when it was founded in the 1970s. One libertarian telling another libertarian, you're not a libertarian. I mean, come on, get off your shit. Let me tell you what it means to me to be a libertarian. That anybody anywhere can think, do, or act any way that they want to unless it harms another person or infringes upon the rights of another person. So what you're inferring, which was never said by anybody, especially me, that if we had a government-backed, debt-free public currency, that it would prohibit the existence of competing currencies. Uh, in my vision, that would not happen. In my libertarian view, anybody, anywhere, in any place should be able to set up any competing currency that they want to, and I still think we need a government currency that, est- that establishes a national sovereignty because if a nation does not have money, it is not sovereign. I've also been told by another person one time, I don't want a sovereign nation, I want sovereign people. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. Sovereign people will have a very hard time existing outside of a sovereign nation that will offer them for protection from people that don't have the same ethics and morals. The best we can do, the best we found, is a properly run republic. Now let's talk about this whole thing. You notice how the callers is greenbackers is like it's calling them devil worshippers or something. Greenbacker simply means that these are people that believe that the government should create the money and spend it into the economy and it should be backed by the nation itself. Now, in the way that I've laid this out, it's not just you just print as much as you want. There has to be a cap on the currency. And in the movie, uh, The Secret of Oz by Bill Still, it's said over and 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 over just to get it through your thick skull, Mr. Caller. All right? And over, one more time, that the currency has to be capped. And the cap on the currency against the value of the economy is what gives each unit of currency its value. I'm sorry that you don't understand economics. And here's the reality. I understand economics a hell of a lot better than, than this guy calling in does because you are married to an ancient principle of gold and silver equals money to the point where I'd say there are people out there, and this guy feels like it. I don't mean insult you. This is how you feel. You have a fervor for gold and silver that is equated almost as a religious attraction, the way that people have a religious attraction to global warming. Seriously. Uh, and to go off and tell somebody else, your, your libertarianism's in question, is one of the most moronic, stupid things that I've ever heard, unless that person is for taking away someone else's freedom. In a libertarian system, if you want a socialist compound and everybody that walks in that door by free will wants to give up their freedom when they walk in that door, they're free to do so. All right? So... A public currency can work, and a public currency has worked in the past, and it's worked rather well, and it's one thing that keeps a nation out of debt. Let me explain this from a logical standpoint. I believe as a libertarian, as a libertarian, uh, one more time, just because you pissed me off, as a libertarian, I believe as a libertarian that the currency should be public and the commerce should be private. 
In other words, money should not have a cost associated with its creation. Money should be created based on the value that exists in the economy, and as the economy grows, the amount of money should grow, and as an economy contracts, the money should contract, so the system stays in balance and stays stable. The number one reason people buy gold is they're afraid of what? The value of their money will go down. So what's the most important thing to instill confidence in a currency? A belief that a value of the currency will remain stable. What I've just given you would create a stable currency. It would also allow for the creation of wealth. Look at it this way. Imagine a basketball court, but a basketball court the size of the entire United States with goals everywhere. There's basketball goals everywhere. Some goals are like so short you can walk up and just stick the ball in there. Some goals are 100 feet tall and you have to take a lot of risk taking that shot because you could be taking the low goals when you're shooting at the high goals. The low goals give you so many points. The high goals give you more points the further away. All of these dynamics you can create with a basketball goal Each shot becomes worth more and more points. Instead of just you know uh, free throws and uh, field goals and three-pointers, we have a multitude. Some points might be worth a million dollars. That's the guy that builds a business and hits a home run with it. All right, That does not require that the points be backed by anything other than the value that they're, that's created when they are created, when the ball goes through the hoop. So when the guy starts up a business and has hundreds of people that want what he's doing, There's value. There's wealth creation. In a system like I'm describing, that number, that valuation formula would be tied to that output so that people would be free to create as much or do as little as they want. Now, if you want to stand up next to that and say, I'm Joe Blow's golden bank, and we do all our banking in gold, and here's our gold and here's how our system works, fine. If you want to stand up and say, I'm Joe Blow's hourly emporium, and what we do is we do a, a timeshare arrangement, and we trade script that's based on time of anybody in our network, and with this script you can get one hour of a lawyer's time out of our network, and you want to use that, fine. If you want to trade bumblebees, beans, band-aids, or bullets, go nuts. You set up your currency any way you want, I'm concerned with setting up currency so that the nation can function in a global economy in 2012, not a global economy of 1800. The Federal Reserve is a disaster. Everybody knows that. And all these people that want gold back currency can never explain how it would actually work. We'd let banks compete for it. What you know, banks are the ones that did this. Banks are the ones that created this. But don't question my libertarianism when you're telling me how I should think and saying that the way I think and what I want to do that doesn't hurt or harm you makes me not a libertarian. You're the one that needs to look in the good old libertarian mirror, my friend. And I don't think I've actually ever said that to anybody before because it kind of bends my libertarian principle almost to the breaking point. But since you let off with it, I'll put it back on you that way. So perhaps you didn't know that in addition to this, I am completely for open competitive currencies and no government monopoly on currency. But the nation must have a the nation must have money, and that money should be able to expand and contract. That was the whole point of the Federal Reserve. Oh, I'm going to do something for you guys now. I've had a couple people harassing me on the blog about why the Federal Reserve is created. I basically said you just answered it for yourself, but you don't know the answer. Here's why the Federal Reserve is created, and it's going to piss some people off, but it's true. Um, there was a desire. In, in uh, that time frame, 1910-1913, he created debt-backed currency. That's what they wanted. Uh, you can't dispute the fact they wanted a debt-backed currency because they, they created one. 
Initially, it used gold as a leverage point, but it was debt-backed. And it's been debt-backed ever since the creation of the Federal Reserve. Through fractional reserve and other things, it created a, 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 a system whereby a loan created money. So by there was no money, you loan money that didn't exist, and now money exists. That's, that's fractional reserve banking. That's the Federal Reserve system that we ended up with when we went off the last vestiges of the gold standard. And that's the Federal Reserve system we had all the way back to 1913 in pieces and components parts. In the Constitution, the United States government is expressly forbid from issuing Uh, notes of credit. So we cannot create money by loaning money into existence as a government. The government can't do it. Absolutely, the Constitution forbids it. And the people that say that today are correct. The Congress and this caller said, you want the Congress to control the money. Yeah, because the Constitution says so. Okay, that's why. Congress is given the power to coin money and set the weights and measures thereof. That means even if we stick to gold and silver, the Congress has the power to set the weights and measures of the paper that the gold is backing any way that they want. A dollar can be anything. They were given that flexibility. You can argue to your blue in the face. It doesn't change a thing. But they can't issue credit. But they can borrow money. The Constitution gives our government the ability to borrow money. So they take the ability. Here you go. Here's the whole thing. They take the ability to create money, and they give it to a private entity in the Federal Reserve. They give it to them. So now we're not creating the money anymore. They are. Then they use their power the Constitution gives them to borrow from the same entity, And that system creates money in a, in, a, in, a, in a fractional reserve system. There you go. So what was the reason? It was a very clever loophole in the Constitution and the way the Constitution was written. And the creation of the Federal Reserve is completely constitutional. doesn't mean I like it. doesn't mean I, don't, I want it. doesn't mean I don't want it repealed. But the argument that it's unconstitutional, folks, it's been here for almost 100 years now. It's a non-starter argument. You can't make that argument. It doesn't help anything. You have to make an argument that the system is flawed and we need to change it. Telling people something's unconstitutional that's been here for a century won't work. Wake up. Wake up. And as far as a public currency, if you want my feelings on what a public currency would actually be like, carry yourself over to trtam.com, click on the book, and get my book that I wrote on it. It's still a beta version for free. All right, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is J.D. in Ohio again with my second question. This one has to do with Ron Paul and a stance he took on a situation where uh, the U.S. military targeted a man named Anwar El Al-Awaki. It was on a, He talked about it in a CBSnews.com article on September 30, 2011. This gentleman targeted U.S. citizens through material support of terrorist activities in a foreign land, not just U.S., but uh, terrorist activities around the world. Anyway, he was killed by a tactical missile strike from a drone, and Ron Paul was adamantly opposed to it because he was a citizen and uh, wasn't given due process of the law before he was killed. I was just curious what your stance is. I personally believe that if somebody is supporting terrorists on a foreign land, whether they're a U.S. citizen or not, if they get killed... That's just too bad, but I, that's my opinion, and I was just curious what your opinion was. Thank you. Bye. My opinion? My opinion is Ron Paul's right and you're wrong, and you don't know why you're wrong. And I, I hate to be that direct, but I'll, I'll explain a couple different things about this. Number one, if this was a war, a declared war, and that person was collaborating with the enemy in an active war, and you want to bomb them? Bomb the shit out of them. We didn't declare war, so we don't get that luxury. 
See, that's part of declaring war. That's how this works. You want a war, you declare war under the Constitution, and then there's constitutional provisions, and there's conventions and agreements and treaties with nations that say, here are the rules of war, and then you conduct things a little bit differently under the rules of war than you do under the rule of the Constitution. In this case, that already doesn't exist, because we have never declared war in this environment. So there's number one. Number two, do I believe this guy's a douchebag and he needed to die? Yeah. But do I believe that... If a person holds up a McDonald's, uh, shoots a couple people, but then comes out with his hands in the air that it's constitutional for the police to gun him down. No. Do I think it's it's legal for if he sits inside that place, is, is unarmed at that point, let everybody go, and he's sitting there by himself for them to just drop a bomb on the McDonald's and remind McDonald's a check for the uh, loss of their, their property and just blow him up without trial when you made no attempt to apprehend him? No. Do I think that it's justice? Yeah, but it's not constitutional. It's not the way our system works. As a citizen of this country, and actually the way the Constitution is supposed to be interpreted, as a citizen of any nation, except under the act, an act of war, right, and a declared war, you're to be given constitutional provisions. So that means that at minimum an attempt should have been made to, to apprehend this person. Um, at least, okay, fine. File extradition, right? File charges. We're, I, I'm not sure. I don't think charges were a. Like, there was no. Um, what do they call it when they issue a thing for? Like a warrant issued for arrest. Was a warrant issued for arrest, or did we just decide he's a terrorist? Blow his shit up. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem with the thinking that you have. If they can do it to him, they can do it to anybody because they say you're. T so next thing you know, there's some people that the government has a disagreement with that are conducting business in a way the government doesn't like on U.S. soil, but they become part of the, quote, war on terror that's undeclared. What's to stop us from bombing them, too? I mean, seriously. You, either the Constitution is valid or it's not. In this case, the Constitution was completely and totally ignored. Let me tell you how another way this could have worked out. They could have sent people in to get the guy. Come out with your hands up. Play a little Jeopardy music. If you do not come up, your structure will be destroyed. Okay, boom. Okay, now. Now. And at least at that point, an attempt was made. You say, well, that would have risked lives. Those guys risk their lives every day. Right? When, when, when police respond to someone hold up with a gun to somebody's head in a store or a home, they risk their lives. That's the responder's job. That's why we should respect and appreciate the hell out of them. Is it worth it? Is the Constitution worth it? See, here's the problem with this. This is what we, well, we, we Americans would risk their lives. When I joined the military, I put my hand up and I said, I solemnly swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. And that, that's, to me, that was a sacred bond. And a sacred bond that says that people are entitled to due process. So, is he guilty? There's plenty of people that are guilty that get trials. Do we take those away too? All right, so, Guy robs a store, video camera, people see him, news ca camera guys out there, videos him coming out of the store. We've got it all on tape. Police take the guy down, put him in handcuffs, take him away. He goes up in front of a judge and judge says, how do you plead? He says, not guilty, I want my trial. What do we say? Oh, you don't need a trial? We have you on camera? He says, but there's, there's circumstances I need to explain. No, you don't need to explain it. You committed burglary with possession of a weapon 15 years in the state. Goodbye. Do we, do we just do away with that? See, you can't have it both ways. Sometimes the Constitution makes us do things that are difficult to do. Sometimes it makes us give 
give uh, acknowledge the rights of other people that we feel shouldn't have them. But that's the only way to protect the rights of everybody. That's why the damn thing exists. So either it matters or it doesn't. So do I? Will I lose any sleep tonight because this person is dead? No. Will I lose sleep because it was that easy to just ignore constitutional protections and our government was able to just do it? Yeah, that bugs me. That bugs me a lot. So I actually support Ron Paul's opinion on this. And some attempt at apprehension should have been made. If during that attempt at apprehension, resistance was encountered and any means that were necessary were used in the field of battle to protect the lives of others and to ensure that the person being pursued did not escape, fine, fine. But an attempt at capture an attempt at arrest, at least a, we would like to, at least a, a formal, you were charged, please show up, should have been made. Now, would he have shown up? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's what you do to prefer, preserve the sanctity of the rights protected by, not given by the Constitution. Everybody accused of anything has a right to some sort of a trial. And if they, if they choose to avoid apprehension and they end up dead during that, that's one thing. If you just kill them so you don't have to do it, that's another. That's what was done here. Trust me, they didn't want to arrest us. And if this guy was as key as they say, don't you think you might want to have a talk with him? As, as much as I'm glad to see Osama bin Laden dead, don't you think there might have been some value in having a conversation or two before we blew his head off? Just saying. Anyway, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Eric in Florida. Um... One of the great things about having a 22 um, bolt-action rifle is it uh, can fire a standard 22 rounds, or you can pop in a 22 short as well. Now, similarly, they make a uh, 22 Magnum bolt-action rifle. In the case of the 22 Magnum, can I run a 22 Magnum, a 22 long rifle, and a 22 short as well, thus having a... a Rifle that shoots three types of ammo. Thank you. Um, the answer is an emphatic no. You cannot fire 22 long rifles in a 22 Magnum. It's not like firing 38 specials in a 357 Magnum. The problem is that the uh, case dimensions are completely different. If and you can see it real easy, uh, try to put a 22 Winchester Magnum rimfire cartridge in a 22 long rifle rifle. It won't go in. It just won't fit because the neck diameter and the base diameter are significantly thicker. Uh, the diameter of the neck of a 22 long rifle is .225, and the diameter of the neck of a 22 uh, rim, uh, 22 Magnum is .240. There's also, uh, I don't think people realize it, but the 22 long rifle, the short and the long, are all perfectly straight cases. So they're .225 in diameter at the neck and the base. The base of the 22 Magnum is .241. So there's a one thousandth of an inch taper. So the 22 Magnum case actually gets thinner as it goes forward, and it's still significantly thicker. If you put a 22 long rifle into a 22 Magnum rifle, it'll go in there and it'll probably fire. But there is a good gap between the the, the cartridge and the walls of the chamber, and it's quite likely to uh, cause rupture, possibly called vast uh, gas venting out the back of the breech, and if nothing else, really screw up and not eject. Um, the rim is also a lot different. The rim of a uh, 22 long rifle is .04. 
uh, .040 in thickness, and the the uh, the rim of a .22 Magnum uh, is .046. So you got six thousandths of an inch different in the rim, and 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 you go into the world of firearms, stuff like that matters. So it's it's not the case that the only difference between a .22 uh, Magnum and a .22 Long Rifle is length. Uh, there are significant uh, variations in the cartridge dimensions, and it's a bad idea all around. So 22 rimfire shooters are forced with the decision, do I want a 22 Magnum or do I want a uh, .22 long rifle? In fact, it isn't even the case that you could build a good adapter. Like you can get a .22 Magnum and put a .22 long rifle adapter in there like we do with certain things. Like there's adapters that will let you shoot uh, .22 long rifles in a, uh, in a, a .223. There's not enough room to build an adapter, right? The tolerances are so close, they're far enough off to screw things up, but they're, not, they're too tight to create an adapter that would work. So that's not going to work. And the other thing, the bullet diameter is even different. It's not even the same bullet. Uh, the bullet diameter of the .22 long rifle is .223, and the bullet diameter of .22 Magnum is .224. Additionally, uh, most .22 uh, long rifle and similar uh, cartridges are healed. Uh, they're a healed bullet, so they basically have a little truncated cone that expands on the backside, and most of the, the rears of a .22 Magnum round are a flat-based bullet or a taper base, but they're not healed. So... I mean, it just doesn't work. It's a bad idea. I could have just said no, but I wanted to give you some of the actual tolerances and facts because I don't want anybody going, oh, it'll work. I'll try it. And, you know, you might try it once and it might work once, but you're going to damage, at best, you're going to damage the weapon long term. And at worst, you might damage yourself short term. Don't do it. It doesn't work. It's not designed to work. When you look at any rifle, it should be stamped with what can go in there. And if it doesn't say it can go in there, don't put it in there. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, this is Jimmy from SoCal. If you lived in an urban environment and you had to drive 40 minutes to work every day, what would you have in your vehicle and what survival tips do you have to have? Well, for the uh, first two years I did the show, it was uh, what I did every single day. I drove 50 miles through an urban environment back and forth, and I carried a basic 72-hour kit, and I carried some additional things for the vehicle. Uh, I carried spare fuel. I carried a AAA card, and that was actually the most valuable thing that I ever carried when I had a breakdown in the middle of 635 on a six-lane highway, and I was in lane three. Uh, surrounded by cars and, and basically uh, dealing with ass clowns and afraid to get out of the car with, for, with fear of being run over by an idiot and actually had a guy with a pickup truck come along and push me to the shoulder with his truck and called AAA. And that was, as, as ridiculous as it sounds, that was the best thing I ever did was have AAA during that commute. So I'm going to say the AAA is something you need to add to there. Um, I would say that I carried basic hand tools. Uh, I carried a means of defense. I had to change a tire. On uh, on uh, the tollway one time, and uh, I can tell you, a guy stopped right before the toll gate while I'm changing a tire and asked me for a quarter. And I was a young kid, but I'm telling you, I had a I had a hand just waiting to draw, and I had the other hand holding the freaking uh, what do you call it, the lug wrench, ready to club the guy before I shot him because I figured he was going to. I mean, it's just a weird thing for someone to do that, but I was able to read his expression that I thought he was genuine. And you have to have some stones, man, to ask a guy changing a tire for a quarter. Uh, I, I almost told him just run the booth, dude. They'll send you a bill in the mail for a buck for doing it. Uh, but I went ahead and gave him a quarter. Uh, that was probably one of my 
like acts of kindness at a time it didn't need to happen. Um, but I have a whole podcast I did early on on equipping the bug out vehicle uh, and, and equipping the bug out bag. And I'll put some links to a couple of those shows for you today. But you, you carry the same thing you carry anywhere. You carry a basic 72-hour kit with three days' worth of food, changes of clothing, uh, means to start fire, the basic stuff. As far as survival advice is understand that you can't prepare for everything, but what you can prepare yourself for is to deal with the situation. So one of the interesting things that you can do that's not about what you carry but how you think is while you're driving, pay attention to your surroundings and start to think to yourself, okay, if I was stuck right here, right now, and I had to either go toward where I was headed or head home, which way would I go and how would I get there? What resources would be available to me here? What possible disasters could have me stuck here? If it's a traffic jam, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving my car. If it's a traffic jam because there's a credible threat of a terrorist strike, I might need to get out. If it's a bioweapons attack, if it's the, the, the you know the, the power's gone out everywhere and it's going to be out for days because of an EMP, or I mean, there's so many different things that can cause it from little to big. But the, the question to ask yourself is where would I go, how would I get there, and what's around here that I could use? What would be the biggest threats to my safety? How would I counteract them? So the time to answer questions like that, especially in a route you travel every day, is while you don't need the answers, not when all of a sudden you have to have the answers. So to me, it's far less about what you carry and far, far more about your situational awareness. Uh, but definitely just a good 72-hour kit, a good means of defense. Carry extra water in your vehicles. It's much easier to carry a lot of water in your vehicles than it is in your bag and on your person. So extra water is a huge thing. Good first aid kit. Uh, you know, Good first aid kit, medical supplies. Uh, that's, that's huge because the reality is you're far more likely to have to stop and help somebody on the side of the road who's bleeding because their face went through a windshield uh, than you are to have to extricate yourself from something like Escape from New York, if anybody remembers that great old movie from the 70s, it was the 70s or 80s, Kurt Russell in it, right? That, the, the, the first scenario is a lot more likely than the second scenario. But definitely have a means of defense. And if you live in a state that won't allow firearms as that means of defense, get yourself the biggest, baddest-ass can of pepper spray you can legally own. Um, I'll tell you, it works good. And there's people who are going to write in today and tell me again, please recommend wasp and hornet spray. No, they don't. It's illegal to be used in that action. But I will add, it would work really, really good. And if your state is stupid and has a law that says you can't have pepper spray over like one gram or something dumb like that, if you just happen to have it there and you just happen to spray somebody in the face with it, it will burn the shit out of them. But that's not why you did it when the police respond to you and say, well, you said, well, I would just went shopping and I picked some things up and I had this fist and I just used it. Because it says on the label of that stuff, it's a federal crime to use it in a manner not consistent with its labeling. And it's not labeled for self-defense or spraying bad guys in the face, but it's no different than picking up a shovel or a tire iron because it's handy and using it to defend yourself. You just know how to answer the questions the right way. Uh, even concealed carry class, they teach you certain things that you say if you ever have to deploy a weapon about how you respond to law enforcement, and it's never, I shot him to kill him. It's, I shot center mass with the attempt of stopping the attack or saving the life of another. And it's very important that you word things properly to cover your ass. So just a thought there. But uh, basic 72-hour kit, basic first aid gear, additional food and water that the vehicle affords you to. If it's practical, in some vehicles it's not, but especially with a pickup truck or something, a good can of fuel stored in the back is a great idea. Um, those are the types of things you absolutely don't want to be without. And then just basic common vehicle sense. Does your spare tire have air in it? This is the jack that came with your car sufficient to change a tire with. 
Honestly, most of the jacks that come with your cars are sufficient to get your ass killed, especially if you're not on a perfectly level, perfectly stable uh, surface. Like, you know, just being on, like, tar, you know, hard, uh, what do you call tarmac blacktop uh, when it's 110 degrees out in the south and your jack sinks into the tarmac and now you can't get it out from underneath your car. So buying things like a simple, uh, like a, a simple small wheel jack, like a floor jack, a good, good hydraulic one, you know, can save you a lot of grief. Having in your trunk uh, just a good, a piece of steel plate that you can put under the jack that keeps it from sinking into soft ground or soft blacktop. I mean, so make sure that you're not just like thinking about all the tactical survival stuff. You got a vehicle to keep running. A can of fix a flat? Come on. I mean, that's, that's an easy thing. Power Dome EX or something like it. Uh, one of my all time, you know, that's in every vehicle we have one of those. It's got an air compressor to fill up a tire. Between that and can of fix a flat, I can at least get where I'm going without having to change a freaking tire in a dangerous situation like I did in the one that I explained to you. Um, it has a ability to jump off vehicles. Uh, I've used it to jump my own vehicle when a battery just kind of went dead on me. I've used it to help people start their cars in parking lots. Think about not just yourself, but taking care of other people. These are the things to think about. Not Rambo, not Red Dawn. Anyway, let's take one more call. We'll wrap up for the day. Hi, Jack. This is uh, Chris from Ohio. Uh, really, really love your show. I've been a uh, listener since basically the beginning. I had a question for you. Uh, one uh, one thing I did this past year to kind of add to my skill set, uh, or at least I view it as my skill set, is uh, become an amateur radio operator. And uh, I had a question for you in re- kind of in regards to that. I uh, belong to a local amateur radio club here, and um, I'm sort of kind of on their committee, their board committee, um, and we've been trying to come up with ideas to expand the club and to gain some interest in the radio hobby. Well, it's viewed as a hobby. Um, and maybe get new amateurs on board, uh, get new am- or, uh, existing members to come back to the club and things like that. And one idea I had that I pitched to them was the idea of kind of tapping into the survival and preparedness uh, aspect of things and uh i think i uh they were intrigued with uh the idea but i was curious if maybe you had any ideas uh that i may not have thought of about uh incorporating uh amateur radio into uh the survival and preparedness uh world um you're uh i really appreciate your time and i'm looking forward to uh your answers uh thanks a lot jack love the show I think you're on the right track, and I think like one thing you could do is just run some workshops. Just run some family emergency preparedness workshops. They'll do a lot better than a survival workshop. Survival workshops are where survivalists go, and most people that would call themselves a survivalist are already aware that you exist. Well, not you in particular, but that ham radio exists, amateur radio exists, and they're doing it if they want to, and they're not doing it if they just haven't found the time or are not interested. So... What you're looking for is to create interest in people and awareness in people that don't know. Well, if you, and now this is for anybody that wants to start building up more of a preparedness in your, your neighborhood and local community. Family emergency preparedness. Those are the words that make moms come, that make dads come, right? That, that's, that's, that's what I want to know. I want to know if something goes wrong, what do we do? Uh, so I think that would be a great thing. So do a, just basic family emergency preparedness sponsored by so and so amateur radio club. 
And then, you know, you make the whole thing and you talk about how important and, and you just make this one small block, not don't do a, a, an hour long infomercial on ham radio, just one small block on how important it will be. If cellular networks are down, phone networks down, how ham radio can play a part in that and say, we're, you know, we're actually looking to expand the number of people in the area that are capable. If you're interested, talk to one of us after the, the event. That would be a great way to bring people in. And you know, you might get 50 people to an event like that and you might get three or four. Uh, but those three or four get three or four more. And then don't ignore your, your networks. Um, one thing I found is that a, a lot of guys that are, that are amateur radio enthusiasts, ham enthusiasts, uh, they'll talk to anybody that they know is already interested. They'll talk to anybody like in the preparedness market, you know, every, everybody already, Jack, are you a ham? No. Oh, damn, you gotta get, like, they want me to do this, right? And it's just one of those things I haven't had time to do yet. And I mean, not everybody's gonna do everything. And there's certain things that are really fascinating to me and certain things that I see their value, but I just personally only have so much bandwidth, mental bandwidth to put into things. And it's like, that's not for me right now. But then they go to work and they don't talk to their fellow co-workers. I mean, so make sure you're tying into your, your local networks without any of the preparedness or survival thing. Just, hey, have you ever heard of ham radio? Let me show you how it works. And then show somebody how you can hit a repeater and talk to somebody. You know, uh, Master, Master Guns, uh, uh, I met him out of SHOT Show. He came to our dinner. And uh, he was... Uh, and that's his handle on the forum, by the way. Um, he was showing me the, how there's an iPhone app now. And you can pull up a ham repeater just about anywhere in the country. And he pulled up a ham repeater in Malvern, Arkansas, which is only 25 miles from here. And from his iPhone, he was using the radio network to communicate with another ham in Malvern, Arkansas from Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, that would, yes, require the cellular networks, but those guys can do that without the cellular phones. So showing people how this works and what the – see, what here's what people are thinking. This is what – the ham industry as a whole is in decline. I, I know somebody's going to be mad at me now, but, I mean, I've paid enough attention to what you guys are talking about. The problem is there's not enough new people coming in and doing it. Well, that means decline. That means there's less and less people – practicing the craft. And I think the average person goes, what do I need that for? We've got cell phones now. And if you think about it, ham was a much bigger deal before everybody and their little kid owned a cell phone. Well, people don't understand the nature of the cellular network and how fragile it is and how easily it can tip over. And they don't understand how in a disaster that none of those lines of communications and the first people that come in and set things up are the hams. Then here's the next thing they think. Well, if there's people that do that, great. They can do that. I'll, you know, they'll work with the police and whatever, and I'll find it. They don't understand the value of knowing it themselves. So these are things you have to convey to people to get them interested. And every time I have this conversation, I go, Shaq, they're right. You really should do this. And uh, then like 400 other things that I need to get done come up. And uh, so it's probably something I'll do. Maybe I'll make it a strategic goal for 2012 to, to get at least my first level uh, of ham taken care of so I can get a call sign and, and, and do that. But uh, the reality is I don't have a lot of uh, a lot more uh, a lot more time for more stuff than all the stuff that I'm already doing. Anyway, with that, uh, this was a great group of calls. I know I may have upset some of you guys today. When I talk about politics, I want you guys to understand this. I only talk about politics anymore when you guys ask. And I tell you what I think, and I don't tell you what I think to convince you. I tell you what I think to expose you to another way of thinking. And if you're afraid to hear another way of thinking, you need to do some self-examination. If you can't hear somebody logically explain a different viewpoint 
and at least consider it. Even if you end up going, I don't agree with them. They're wrong. I'm going to stay here. But if you can't have that logic, if you just go, I can't even listen. I only got halfway through and I turned it off like our one caller. Well, then you haven't actually listened to what was presented. You don't actually know what the opposing viewpoint is. You've just chosen to cling to something that you've made part of who you are. And, and that's a dangerous thing. You know, it's important that we keep open minds. It's important that we hear other views. And it's important that when we disagree with them, we articulate back while we disagree. But we don't just write the person off with the idea or tell them, you're no, you're taking your man card or we're taking your libertarian card or any kind of stupid nonsense like that. The whole concept, and I am a libertarian, the whole concept of libertarianism, free thoughts, free ideas. Swing your fist as hard as you want until you hit another man in the nose. And then you've got a problem. That's when you've infringed on another person's rights. And I think there's room for everybody. There's room for all types of ideas. And I think that we need an environment where those ideas can compete with each other. And that's how we'll find out what the best solutions are. The problem that we have today is in many situations, uh, corporations and government have strangled out competition through regulation. And uh, because of that, we're told it's either A or B, and we decide A, Democrat, B, Republican. A, tax, B, low tax, right? I mean, it's, it's every, every decision of any consequence in your life that you can think of now has pretty much been broken down from a political extreme to two choices. And I don't mean just Democrat and Republican or liberal and conservative. I mean the actual solution. It's A or B. How many C and D and E and F solutions have you heard recently to a problem? Very few. And the reason is that that requires competition. And the reality is that you can be upset if you want about my political views or somebody else's political views, but it doesn't matter. Our, our system will be in place for quite a while yet. We're, the, the, the idiots that are in control are in control heavily. The only thing we control is our own lives. So run your life as a personal libertarian. Run your life under your terms as much as you can. Examine as many solutions to your personal issues as you can before you make a good decision and go forward. Keep an open mind. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares, they're living for today. 
Yeah.